Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Faith Stiefelman, professor of law at New York Law School. We'll be discussing her forthcoming article, Boards and Information Governance, which is co-authored with Sarah Hahn and is forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Business Law. Faith, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Faith, in this article, you note that boards have followed an agency cost monitoring paradigm when it comes to corporate governance. And you also note that when it comes to policy considerations that are unrelated to shareholder value, they followed uh, what you identify as a separate realm approach. What do you mean by that? Uh, and what are some of the failings of these approaches that you identify in the paper? Thank you for that question. What we're doing in the first half of this paper, and again, you mentioned my co-author, and it's been fabulous to work with another scholar. And I also to thank you that I really do think of scholarship as a conversation and think that's extremely important. So essentially, in the first half of this paper, we're in conversation with the last 40 years of corporate law scholarship and corporate governance. And corporate law scholarship and corporate governance, as you said, has been shaped around this shareholder primacy idea. And it's really structured all of corporate law scholarship, you either embraced it or you grappled with it. And I think it's fair to say that that idea grew out of uh, economic writing in this period that believed that growth was going to solve all problems, that if we just maximize growth, that everyone would be better off. And so this translated into the corporate law realm as promoting profitability for shareholders. And then the monitoring board idea was the idea that that's what boards would do, that boards would be instrumental in making sure that corporate executives were engaged in maximizing profits for shareholders. Frankly, this yielded a a very narrow view of what the board's role would be. And I think the father of the monitoring board was Mel Eisenberg. And then this was refined over time. Um, consistent with this economic focus growing out of Jensen and Meckling and Fama and Jensen, and then Easterbrook and Fischel, so that the role of the board was to surveil self-dealing and limit self-dealing and surveil CEO indolence that might be creating shortfalls in corporate profit. And if there really was a problem, then to replace the CEO. And of course, compensation was also used as a way to incentivize the CEO. And the monitoring model relied very heavily on outside directors. This was increasingly evident in state corporate law decisions. And these decisions looked at boards in very particular contexts, in mergers and acquisitions, and in response to shareholder derivative litigation and the demand requirement, or in cleansing the Tate votes. But interestingly enough, state corporate law did not look at boards as leaders. And the idea was that the shift to outside directors meant perforce a kind of a shortfall in directors being informed about what was really happening within their company and what the possibilities for their company would be. And so 
shareholder primacy on the monitoring board and outside directors worked on the idea that these outside directors could look at stock prices. And if the company's stock price was hanging in there with its competitors, was basically doing okay, then the directors could kind of stand down. And we find lots of problems with that. Obviously, the COVID crisis and what it's done to stock market prices is the most obvious example. Directors can't wait to see where stock prices are going to go. There's so much uncertainty. And it really puts an emphasis on leadership of boards along with the C-suite. And if boards and companies don't lead, if they don't figure out what they need to do, then they, you know, they may not have a company to go back to when, when the situation passes. And before the COVID crisis, there were still all kinds of problems with reliance on stock prices. And you know what the most illustrative exemplar of this way of talking about corporate governance and corporate boards is Jeff Gordon's article in the Stanford Law Review, The Rise of Independent Directors, 1950 to 2005. He's done a magnificent job of talking about the development of this school of thought. But I think even Jeff would say that, that there are problems with that paradigm. Many scholars have looked at the problem of stock markets being favoring short-termism. We've looked at problems of whether stock markets can impound complex information. There's confidential information that doesn't get to the stock markets. And so there's been all kinds of problems with reliance on stock markets. What we focus on in the paper is that the absence of a discussion about board leadership and the absence of a discussion about boards in strategy, boards being informed enough to be part of the conversation about strategy, has meant the companies are really vulnerable to activist hedge funds. And maybe the activist hedge funds plan would be constitutive of greater value, or maybe the activist hedge funds are shakedown artists. It's really puts the pressure on boards to figure out what kind of proposal this is. And as we said, if boards aren't steeped in the information economy of their firm, they're not going to be prepared to deal with this. So that's the first part of our paper. So on the subject of separate realms, this is a nomenclature that Sarah and I have come up with. But even though the nomenclature is ours, we see this as a very deep kind of tectonic presumption in corporate governance writing. I think it reflects many things. One of them is that, as I've said, the idea of shareholder primacy and the economic studies that are behind shareholder primacy, these all grew up in the late 1970s and then flourished in the 80s and 90s and beyond. And I think that at least in the early part of this period, companies were considered to be subject to state sovereignty. You know, companies were situated within a body of national law and the administrative state and administrative regulation. And if you believe that, if you believe that companies are going to be systematically subject to a thick network of legal requirements, well, then it really may make sense to think of the purpose of the corporation to be profit maximizing. And then you can have ex post tax regulation to accomplish distributional goals. 
But I think it's clear that in the past 20 years, at least, and this also relates to the rise of technology. And of course, the rise of technology is the big super story in our paper. And I don't think anybody has written about boards and the rise of technology, which is really quite amazing because, of course, you did a podcast on financial technology and AI. You did a podcast on workers and their surveillance. And these are fascinating, very well-developed subjects. It's pretty remarkable that nobody before us has really dug in these issues of expanded information technology and boards and leadership. So what I was going to say is that expanded information technology is really responsible for the rise in the globalization of trade and commerce and supply chain firms and the altered structure of firms. So we've moved from hierarchies to networks. And that way of thinking, that reality doesn't fit in to the idea of corporations being passive recipients of the laws of a nation state. And so I think the globalized asset light firm has destroyed the subject to state sovereignty. The state will think about all of the welfare of the different participants of the corporation so that the corporation can only think of, can focus only on growth. And of course, economics has changed. It was possible for economists in this period to think that growth would solve all problems. And we now see the rise of very sophisticated methodologies in contemporary heterodox economics, as you can see in the work of Heather Boucher, who focuses on the fact that growth is only one metric of the success of an economy and that sort of thing. So we're in a very different place. And of course, what we write about as pushing against the separate realms conceit and the separate realm sensibility in corporate affairs is the rise of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. And it's really quite remarkable to see that it's been investors who are bringing these issues beyond growth and beyond profit maximization for shareholders to the table and forcing a greater confrontation on the part of corporate leadership to all kinds of issues that are not about profit maximization. Is there an alternative paradigm to this agency cost monitoring approach that you identify in the paper? In the past, the alternative paradigm has been stakeholderism to recognize that there are many participants in the life of firms. And one approach was Margaret Blair and Lynn Stout's team production model. And another approach was fiduciary duties to stakeholders. And what we're doing is really very different. We really feel like we need to find a way around this issue of is corporate purpose about growth and profit maximization for shareholders or is corporate purpose about stakeholderism and team production. And we really approach this issue or the building of a paradigm before we get to those allocative concerns. So our paradigm is information governance. And by information governance, we're looking at a movement away from exclusive reliance on stock prices. We're looking at boards as being a locus of leadership. We're looking at the end of a credible claim that CEOs control information flows. 
we're looking at the extraordinary rise in communication technology so that people are really constantly able to communicate. I'm able to do this with you from my home. And yet I feel like we're having a very vital conversation about the future of corporate governance. So directors are able to reach one another all over the world on the phone, through text, through sending attachments, the evolution of software, software creating board dashboards, the sending of attachments and the dashboards that are interactive. And then the creation of architecture of information technology within the firm. You know, you see this in the Caremark decision and in the outgrowth of the Caremark idea, as well as Sarbanes-Oxley's codification of the necessity of internal controls. We see a much more robust internal architecture of information flow that boards can reach into so that they don't need to rely on the simplistic heuristic of stock prices. So our paradigm is information governance. We are offering that up as an alternative to shareholder primacy in the monitoring board or stakeholderism or team production. This paper has been in progress for a while. Little could you have known that this current global crisis that we are facing would come along as you were writing uh, the paper, but you do address some of the implications of the COVID-19 crisis in the current draft that's available. How would this information governance approach interplay with the current crisis, and how might we see it emerge more clearly in the aftermath? Yes, many different ways. We, of course, don't deal with the public health dimensions of the crisis, but the fact that the crisis has driven people to their homes and we're trying to keep some elements of an economy going remotely on the basis of our technology absolutely plays into our paper. And our paper is trying to think about the future of firms and the future of board leadership in a world where we have this remote technology and what it will do, as I said, to the nature of corporate leadership and to the nature of work. So we're seeing executives that are continuing to be able to work remotely. And then, of course, workers who are required to do on-the-ground deliveries and production and move things along through supply chain, those people out in the world are not as lucky as us to stay safe in a home. So I think the issue of inequality presents itself in a new way in the infotech information governance equality. That's one thing. Information technology or information governance with respect to boards, there's already been a discussion of cyber risks and hacking that's been uh, very well acknowledged. I think it's clear that boards in the future are going to have to be much more technology savvy. And we're seeing a chief information officer or chief technology officer rise to the level of the C-suite. And I think that boards are going to be engaged with that chief technology officer and chief information officer in thinking about what is it that I can know up to the moment about what's happening with my company. For example, there's a chance that we'll see lawsuits under Caremark about what did the board know and when did it know it 
what should it have known? Did it have the information architecture to be aware that its supply chains in China were threatened for things that were vital? Or did the board fail to do enough to establish the systems of information gathering and reporting so that it would be ready to respond to a crisis like that? So that's one way. Another thing that's happening right now is virtual shareholder annual meetings. And of course, at annual meetings is because proxies are powers of attorney and not absentee ballots. The idea is that the proxies are voted at the annual meeting. And so what does a virtual annual shareholder meeting mean? We still have this conceit that somebody needs to be present at the meeting. In fact, it's required legislative changes. Some of the governors have approved these in a variety of states to be able to have fully remote meetings so that somebody is presenting the shares that have been voted at the meeting. And I think we're going to, we're in this inflection point where the annual meeting, virtual annual meetings. Well, the one question is whether firms will take advantage of this change to stay with annual meetings. Uh, whether virtual annual meetings will remain the new normal or whether companies will go back to in-person meetings. Sarah and I think that probably there'll be a large shift to virtual annual meetings. And the question is whether the technology will evolve, which is to say whether boards will allow the technology to evolve to use these virtual meetings to expand shareholder inputs and shareholder voting, which of course is even more possible because the cost of collective action go down when you can talk on the phone or whether you can jump on your laptop. So we have the possibility of expanded participation through reduced cost of collective action that are possible with technology or whether virtual annual meetings will be really a facsimile or simulacrum of governance. So it'll be more like kind of watching a movie on Netflix as opposed to being at a meeting. So the virtual annual meetings are another place that that we see this evolution. Faith, in this paper, you talk about existing paradigms of corporate governance and you propose a new paradigm. What role have governance paradigms played, practically speaking, on the ground when it comes to uh, how corporate governance is done in the United States? First of all, the second half of our paper really tries to dig in to what is happening in the world that is not sufficiently recognized within the field of corporate law scholarship and corporate governance, and to see it differently. And one thing I wanted to say about that is that we look at corporate governance as a really expansive field, so that you have scholars who are actively in communication with lawmakers and judges and corporate lawyers and investment bankers and CPAs and bodies like the PCAB. And so what you and I and other corporate law scholars say about paradigms in governance can be really influential. And so one of the things that Sarah and I do is we look at the development of the requirements of audit committees. And within the field, audit committee work and risk management and legal compliance work have were really derided within elite circles. And I think this was part of the idea that markets were the locus of governance, that market forces would force a discipline that would take care of things for the most part. So the takeovers take care of things and 
executive compensation incentives take care of things and maybe sophisticated investors, institutional investors will be monitors. That will be a way of taking care of things. And thinking of board work on audit committees or board work and risk management was really derided as compliance, as kind of make work that arose principally from federal regulation. And we think that was a terrible mistake. And we revised the account of boards and audit committees and boards and risk management and legal compliances, creating a foundation for leadership, that boards who have worked actively in leading a team that is producing sophisticated financial reports, and of course, this encompasses financial statements in 10Ks and 10Qs and MDNA and probably discussion of risk factors, maybe discussion of litigation penalties. We see this as a basis for board's very high-level leadership and participation in strategy. And, and that was also a real surprise to us, is that the field of corporate law and corporate governance has really ignored board involvement in strategy. And that was really shocking because the management literature has a lot to say about high-level strategy formation. And there are these resource-based views, school of thought, and Michael Porter's school of thought, thinking about how strategy evolves and how strategy is implemented. And it's very clear how boards can participate in that. But I think it was only Nadell Grossman who had a paper on where is the corporate governance literature on boards and strategy and really hasn't existed. So we've tried to take the rise in information technology and the saturation of company corporate business information that is available to boards and think about how that gives boards a platform to be really vigorously active in strategy. So that's the second half of our paper. And also, I, one of the things that we tried to do justice to, in addition to, you know, the tremendous rise in audit committees and risk management and legal compliance and strategy discussion in the literature is we're looking at the development of fiduciary duties in corporate law and noting that they tremendously, outside of takeovers, well, even inside of takeovers, look at the relationship of boards to the information environment in their firm. And so we see corporate fiduciary duty law moving in this way, but maybe not having a theoretical framework to shape these developments. And we looked at the fiduciary duty of care that asks boards to inform themselves of all information reasonably available. And of course, the the scope of information reasonably available in 2020 is completely different than the scope of information reasonably available when Smithy Van Gorkum gave that construct to corporate law. Um, But it hasn't evolved in the corporate law literature because of corporate exculpation clauses and uh, limitation on litigation in this area. So that's, that's a really interesting thing. And then I'd also say that the duty of candor, which you know, really kind of blossomed in the Malone v. Brinkat litigation that was, I believe that decision was 1999 or 1998, where the Supreme Court said that courts really have a responsibility to ensure the accuracy of the corporate information that's put out there in SEC filings, that that's a matter of governance, not just market regulation. And so that was a really important decision in talking about tying board 
activity and board leadership to the promulgation of information and the information ecology within firms and then beyond firms. And then Sarah and I are fascinated by the evolution of care mark duties. And of course, care mark is a fascinating decision because it was decided way back in 1996 at the same time that Mel Eisenberg was writing his important article on boards of directors' internal controls. But it kind of stayed back there in the background because of the odd procedural posture of the case, a decision on a settlement, and then jurisprudentially, it was kind of weird. Was it about the duty of care or the duty of good faith or the duty of loyalty? So that it wasn't until 2006, I believe, that the Supreme Court affirmed these so-called care mark duties, and they have that affirmative part that is so much, so relevant to our paper of saying that boards have an obligation to ensure that there is a reasonable, a good, and efficacious system of information gathering and reporting that goes from the bottom of the firm to the top of the firm. And you can see this reflected also in at the federal level with uh, whistle up the chain reporting that go, again goes back to 1995 in the Securities Litigation Reform Act and then through Sarbanes-Oxley and also through Dodd-Frank's protection of whistleblowers. So care mark duties, there's that informational infrastructure constitutive part, but then the liability part was only if there was a really egregious failure. And at first, care mark litigation was limited to the scope of failures of legal compliance so that the company had been held liable for legal or regulatory failures and these losses were attributed to board inaction. And, you know, that's a pretty narrow framework. And then the Caremark lawsuits were brought in the wake of the financial crisis. And the question was whether boards could be held liable for not really understanding the financial risk that they were signing off on. So the question was financial risk and operating risk, and the courts didn't want to go there. But increasingly, it looks, especially with the Marchand v. Barnhill case, it increasingly looks that the courts are open to the idea that boards have these broader leadership responsibilities, broader operating responsibilities, risk management responsibilities. So that's growing up in the care mark fiduciary duty area, and that ties into our work on information governance. There are times in which I'm doing my scholarship in which I feel like this is very recondite work, but I think actually there's an enormous story to be told about the influence of corporate governance scholars, and that's another reason why I think your podcast is really great because these are not mini ideas. These are really big ideas. And as I said, there's been a fantastic flow between business law scholars. By fantastic at this moment, I mean actually large rather than excellent. A really large flow between business law scholars and this field of corporate governance players. So as I said, corporate lawyers, bankers, regulators, judges, CPAs, So corporate governance ideas are incredibly powerful. And that is another issue that I wanted to bring up with respect to our paper, which is we don't necessarily believe, I didn't say this is accepting around this profit maximization versus stakeholder dialectic and 
and really looking at different things. And we don't necessarily propose this as a solution. We think that this is really a fact, that this is a new reality, that it needs to be theorized properly so that it can be recognized properly. If you're going to have an intensive conversation about what the role of worker surveillance is, don't you need to have to also focus on the decisions that boards are making and whether they are using their leadership capacity to build corporations that we really want? And at the end of the financial AI podcast, your speaker talked about financial AI really needs to be serving the needs of people, of humans. And moving away from the old understanding of the purpose of the economy being growth, I heard someone say, the purpose of the economy is to solve human problems. And so the information governance board, the question is whether boards will use information governance to solve human problems and to benefit society. And that's where I want to say, we see the possibility of information governance has real possibilities, for example, in expanded transparency and expanded dialogue with different stakeholders and expanded ESG governance. But there is also a darker side potentially to information governance that keys into that kind of surveillance state are putting this out there, not as the final word on information governance, but hopefully as a really germinative new paradigm that will lead to further work, further analysis. Faith, what open questions or key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this conversation or from the paper itself? I guess the last one that we haven't talked about is that I think the underlying concept of corporations that existed in the time of the monitoring board really was a very different corporation, a different corporate economy. That there was still Taylorism and factories and hierarchies and manufacturing probably circulating within the minds of the people that were thinking that way. Um, and the economy is so different now. I was reading about Boeing and the number of parts that go into their planes that come out of supply chains. And it made me, and I live in Seattle where, where Boeing has different factories. It made me think completely differently about what is happening at those factories and the fact that Boeing is really an information tech company as much as it is an airplane or aerospace manufacturer. So for a new economy, we need a new theory of corporate governance. And obviously what we're seeing in corporate governance is the leveraging of information technology to build companies that exist in networks. And I think the information governance idea is better suited to thinking about an economy that is expansive in terms of its structure, expansive in terms of its location, and expansive also in terms of where the value of the company lies. So that's where we also invoked this discipline of communication constitutes organization, or also the resource-based view of the firm that very much looks at information as a source of competitive advantage and the structuring of information flows as a source of competitive advantage. And those are all ideas that we're trying to leverage in our paper. Our guest today has been Faith Stiefelman, professor of law at New York Law School. 
We've discussed her forthcoming article, Boards and Information Governance, which is co-authored with Sarah Hahn and is forthcoming in the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Business Law. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Faith, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.